Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Our topic for today, last in the series with regards to the book of Jonah, is justice or mercy question mark justice or mercy question mark and the, the, the subheading is a blinded believer in the light of God's goodness a blinded believer in the light of God's goodness we're looking at Jonah chapter 4 and as you're turning flicking there have you ever been to central London and seen artists doing charcoal, charcoal or pastel drawings, kind of like still life drawings. You may have had yours done and you probably turned and you gave them your good side, right? An artist from the 17th century, he <clears throat> was doing a portrait painting of a rich, unattractive duchess. And um, the Duchess turned and she said to him as he was setting up his easel and she was sitting there and getting in position, she said to him, I hope that you do me justice. To which the artist replied, Madam, it's not justice that you need. You need mercy. (laughs) And how many of you know, according to the Bible, We all need mercy. It's true for all of us, isn't it? But the problem is, some of us find, we find mercy unacceptable for ourselves very often, but particularly when it's applied to others. Ain't trying to give no one too much mercy. Now, you heard of Napoleon, right? Napoleon Bonaparte. He was a French military leader. Well, he was in the process of executing a, a young soldier for cowardice. He backed off when he ought not to on the front line. And the young man's mother came to Napoleon on hand and, and, and knees begging for mercy. And Napoleon said, he doesn't deserve mercy. And the young man's mother said, if he, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. One demands justice and the other demands mercy. And this is what we'll see in this last chapter of Jonah, chapter 4. Let's read verse 1 through to verse 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that, is, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O oh Lord, please take my life. For it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, 
You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Just to recap, God sent Jonah in chapter one, right, to preach to Nineveh. God says go, and Jonah says no. But eventually, (laughs) Jonah sees that resistance is futile. In chapter two, Jonah is swallowed up by a great fish because of his disobedience. Jonah says, God saves, but not everyone. And that's the gospel according to Jonah. In chapter 3, Nineveh repents in response to God's message. We said the greatest revival in the Bible, grace and mercy, as Mark shared with us, for sinners. And in chapter 4, we're going to see Jonah respond angrily to God's mercy. That don't even sound right, like Ambassador said one time. Jonah the prophet is more concerned about plants than people. Jonah is a blinded believer who foolishly desires justice instead of mercy. And he doesn't understand God's goodness. So, in chapter four, two characters, God and Jonah. Two scenes inside the city, and outside the city. Verse one to four, God and Jonah are inside the city. Verse five to 11, God and Jonah are outside the city. Jonah chapter four, verse one. But it it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He was displeased. And not just displeased, he was exceedingly displeased or Jonah was extremely displeased the sentence construction is emphatic to say that he was vexed was an understatement he was very I was gonna say vex he was very vex then then it also adds and he was angry the King James says he was very angry The word angry means to burn or to wax hot. I mean, to to glow even. And I I think about about him in this moment like the human torch, right? Is that the Fantastic Four? Human torch, he's he's glowing. And I also think of him like the Incredible Hulk, David Banner. You know, when when, when his eyes start going and he just starts turning green and his shirt starts burst? That's how my man's feeling right now. Now, what would make a man so livid, so furious, so irate? Well, it's in contrast to the verse before it. The reason is verse 10 of the previous chapter, Jonah chapter 3. Look at verse 10, right? You know that there's no chapter divisions in the Bible. They were added by the translator to help us. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it don't help like in this instance. Verse 10 of chapter 3 says, When God saw what they, that is the Ninevites, did, what? How they turned from their evil way and they repented, right? Then God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. That has got to be one of the greatest verses in the Bible right there. Every one of us here today ought to rejoice at the truth in that verse. When a sinner repents, God relents. How many of you know that's good news? Jonah, he went in and he preached and the people perfectly responded. I mean, it's a preacher's dream come true. (laughs) They do what you didn't do at the beginning when I asked you, to do something. And yet, even though everybody responded in a way that was pleasing, Jonah is angry. 
And you have to give him credit, right? Even though he's angry, he doesn't, he doesn't jump on Twitter, he doesn't jump on Facebook, right? What did he do? Verse two, it said he prayed to the Lord. That's a good verse right there. And said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Referring back to chapter one, when God called him, right? And sent him to Nineveh. God sent him and, and it's coming like, he, I, don't, I don't even know if he looked at God. But how many of you know in chapter one, he don't even respond. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah goes, He says, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. See, his rash, that's his rationale for running, his reason for the disobedience. He says, he says, for I knew that you're a gracious God. Pastor P prayed it when he's praying for Maurice. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I mean... Here's an, I'd, I'd say that this is another great verse. It's like a, a great song that gets remixed every 10 years. It's a classic, this verse. Because <laughs> it comes up all the time in the scriptures, right? It's like, I don't know, it's like, um, you know that song, I Did It My Way? It's not a good song. It could probably be Jonah's theme tune. You know what I'm saying? Frank Sinatra done that first, right? And then a few other people done it. Elvis Presley done it. And then after, um, even Sid Vicious went on to do, do a cover. It's a classic. And in a couple of years' time, you hear somebody else bring it out and it goes to number one. Classic. This verse is a classic. It's a, it's a, popular, it's a popular statement mentioned throughout the Bible. Now, <clears throat> if I were to ask you to break it down, what would be your definition of God? Well, in verse two, this is the way that God is defined and we do well to listen. I think the first time it comes up is Exodus chapter 34. It's the first mention. And who can best describe God other than God? Verse four. So Moses cut two tablets. Mm -mm. Try your best to read that. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. I mean, Moses, you could say he's in trouble because God gave him the, to- the stone tablets originally. He broke them, didn't he? Hmm. And he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Right? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving, for, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That's grace. A thousand generations to those that love him and only three or four generations to those that, that hate him. That's a blessing. That's grace. Verse 8, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Now, see that verse mentioned again. In this verse, or in this collection of verses, there's an aspect of retribution, right? You saw that, and judgment. But don't get it twisted. Where's the emphasis? On justice or on mercy? And you see, in this text, I think Dan, um, Daniel, Dean was talking about this at community group the other night. The context of, 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 of Exodus 34 is two chapters previously, <clears throat> the children of Israel have been worshipping a calf, an idol. And like I said, Moses just broke up the two tablets that God gave him originally. I mean, Israel are in trouble for loads of reasons. And God could have turned green on them. God could have, he could have become a superhuman torch and burn up the whole of them. But he didn't. And you know why? Because he's slow to anger. He's, he's a gracious God. He's merciful, abounding in steadfast love and relenting, not desiring to bring disaster. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. God extends mercy. And it's quoted again in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, also in Psalm 103, verse 8. 
and multiple other places. It's a classic. Every Jew worth his salt would have known this verse. They would have memorized this statement. But that's a part of the problem, see? You can have it in your head, but not in your heart. We had a baptism last night. Again, quoting Pastor P, he mentioned it. Had a baptism last night. And if you didn't come, you missed out. It's always beautiful to hear new Christians talk about God, talk about the Lord Jesus. Of, of all the people that were baptized, there wasn't one that didn't show evident emotion. If not all of them, most of them were in tears. Why? Because they were overwhelmed. By what? God's mercy. As we become more and more familiar with the Bible, there's a real danger of becoming big-headed and hard-hearted. And that is what has happened to Jonah. He could quote the verse accurately, theologically, contextually. But Jesus says, look, many confess me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jonah is theologically sound, but blatantly blind. I mean, Jonah, you should have gone to Specsavers. I love that the two adverts that I remember is the woman coming off the train, right? And she ain't got her glasses on. And she thinks the guy's her husband and she goes up to him and she kisses him. And her husband's standing over kind of looking and thinking. And then she realizes, right? Should have gone to Specsavers. And then there's another couple, old couple. And they're sitting down. They think they're sitting down on a park bench. <laughs> Tutus pull out their sandwiches. Little do they know, they're sitting on a roller coaster. And they've pulled down the things on them. I don't know. They're on Colossus at Fort Park or Stealth. And two twos, they're going. And their sandwiches are going everywhere. <laughs> the two poor old pensioners. You should have gone to Specsavers. Jonah, he needs to get his spiritual eyes tested. Jonah is a great picture of how a believer can be blinded even in the light of God's goodness. God is slow to anger, but Jonah's the opposite. And, and he's, angry with an un, he's angry to an unhealthy extreme. Look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. My gosh. How many of you know Jonah's not in a good place? But then again, <clears throat> at least he's communicating with God. Can you see that? I'm on a tight schedule today, you know, so. He could be keeping stuff inside, which actually would be worse. But one thing we have to love about Jonah is that he's honest. He's misguided, <laughs> but he's, he's sincere. And often sincerely wrong. We would do well to follow his example, at least in our prayers. That is to vent what is on our hearts to the Lord. I mean, because he knows anyway. Right? Especially if it's as serious as wanting to die. And I don't take it for granted that Christians don't have those thoughts. And you may be here today, you may not be a Christian. We definitely know that people who are not believers have those types of thoughts, right? And you know what? You can bet. It's all right, sis. Don't feel, don't feel embarrassed. It's all good. Oh, did I switch mine off? Yeah, I think I did. Oh, yeah, it's recording. Now, you can bet that as he's praying, God has got something serious to say in response, right? I mean, that's a serious plea, right? I want to die. And it's not an unusual request. Some of, some of God's greatest servants felt the same way. Moses, remember? Felt like he wanted to die. I can't deal with this, Lord. These people, they're killing me. I'd rather die. Elijah, oh my gosh, Jezebel, she's coming for me. Je was it Jezebel? Yeah, Jezebel, coming for me. He wanted to die. And then also Job. Remember Job cursed the day that he, his wife said to him, why don't you just curse God and die? He didn't, but he did curse the day that he was born. Coming like some 
Moses, Elijah, and Job. And notice, as all the others, Jonah, he realizes he can't commit suicide, although he feels suicidal. And I thank God for these great examples in the Bible. So that if we ever feel like this, you don't have to suffer in silence like you're the odd one out, like there's something wrong with you. I'm sure every single striking one of us in there at, at some time felt like, you know what? Rather than me confront this thing, I'd rather die. A lie? <clears throat> and he says, Lord, he says, please, you take my life. Notice that. Because he knew that as bad as things were, he couldn't take his, he couldn't take his own life. You can't take your own life. Why? The sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill, and that includes you. That includes me killing myself, killing yourself. There were also different incidents where, do you remember when Moses and then Paul in the New Testament, they both wanted to die, but for different reasons. They wanted to lay down their lives so that others might live. Do you remember that? Here, Jonah wants to lay down his life, but not because he wants others to live. (laughs) He actually wants them to die. He's on some death wish, like today's a good day to die. Is that Bruce Willis? Is that the what was the last one? Last film that he meant called Die Some Die Hard, number fifty-five or something. And maybe, and you see the thing is, when we look at Jonah, I think I think when we begin to understand when we when we don't understand the backstory we tend to kind of write Jonah off but I think once you hear a little bit of the backstory you might you might understand why he felt the way he did do you remember how the book of Jonah refers to Jonah in chapter one very often the, 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 the prophetic books will make reference to the person that's written the book, whether it's Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. <clears throat> Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, who was who? The son of Amittai. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 14, we see another reference to Jonah. Starting at verse 23. Jeroboam, son of Joash did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, there's another Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hepha. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. Note that. God saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out, sorry, but the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So here's the thing. Israel... God's people are under God's judgment. Israel have been living in sin. This is the northern kingdom, right? And they had a succession of evil kings. God's people are experiencing terrible affliction from the surrounding enemy nations. And a whole series of raids where they're, they're murdering the men, the women, and the children. Ben-Hadad, a merciless, like, like Ming the Merciless, king of Syria. Hey, Hazael, it's hard to pronounce words. Hazael, he's, he's another nasty piece of work. They besiege Israel, causing severe famine, and they kill all the fighting men. It's a terrible time of military defeat for God's people, all because of their sin. But then, then there's a period of reprieve under the reign of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, verse 27, right? There's no conflict, 
There's momentary peace by God's grace. And at that point, what they do is they now extend the borders that had been breached, right? And they begin to gain back some of the land that had been possessed by their enemies. Verse 25 says, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant who? Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from where? A place called gath Hepha. Now, gath Hepha. I'm trying to give you the background. Gath, because I find it so helpful. I was always kind of looking at Jonah a certain way. gath Hepha was one of the villages that had been, been, been raided, raped, and pillaged. It was vulnerable because, as I said, it was on the border. It, and it was always one of the first targets of the enemy invaders. And guess what? Jonah is from this village. Incidentally, this village that's constantly raided and plundered, which is where Jonah comes from, is three miles away from Nazareth, which is where Jesus grew up. Now, the year is 760 BC. Do you know who is the largest looming leading threat to Israel? At the time. Anybody just shout it out. It's only going to be a few. Who? Syria. That's a good one. I mentioned that. Syria ain't big enough. You ever see Syria? Syria is some little, little tiny country just above Lebanon, just north of Israel. Bigger than that. Give me, give me a country bigger than that. Close. Oh, you ain't trying to help me. Sorry? Somebody said Ghana. Oh, my, did you say Ghana? Somebody... All right, all right, let me just. <laughs> Ghana is a big country. Um, not so far south. <laughs> Modern day Iraq, ancient Assyria. Oh, did somebody say that? Well, you was right then. Guess what is the capital of Assyria? Nineveh! Now do you begin to understand why Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites? You can see why Jonah wants God to destroy this great city. God had, he had determined their destruction, not least of all because they deserved it. This is a wicked set of people. Did you turn me up? Was, sounds like I need to get turned down. You can, it, uh, is this uncomfortable? At this time, they are the world's superpower. And it won't be long before they come swooping over the mainland and annihilate everything in their path, starting with Israel. Can you begin to empathize with Jonah? And 38 years later, in 722 BC, Jonah's worst nightmare came true. This is after the book. 38 years or so later, Israel are taken into Assyrian captivity. Can you see that? To Jonah, going to Nineveh, to preach to them that they would repent, knowing that God would forgive them and not punish them, would be like a Jewish person going to the, 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 the Germans as they're rounding them up. I mean, it's evident what's going on. Rounding them up to send them to concentration camps. I'm a Jew, now I'm going to go preach to them, knowing that they're wicked and bad, but God is going to forgive them. Am I going to want to go to them? I don't think so. Jonah, I kind of understand how, how you're feeling. Now, <clears throat> remember Jonah's plea, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Kind of makes a little bit more sense now, don't it? Like I'm backing it for my country. Like what? I'd, die, I'd, rather, I'd rather die. Verse 4. <clears throat> Look at how the Lord responds to Jonah's messed up yet honest prayer. Verse 4. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? <laughs> I mean, really and truly, the Lord never had to answer him. Like how he never answered God in chapter 1. The Lord could have been saved. I'm a spite, you see. You say I never chat to me in chapter one. But Lord, in his mercy and his grace, look. And you can tell there's a gentle inflection. Do you do, be, do, you do well to be angry? I mean, God's not going to shout. Do you do well to be No, he's not going to do it like that, is he? I can imagine John is saying, of course I've got reason to be angry. Ask me some stupid questions. 
course I've got reason to be angry. You know more than anybody what's going on. Notice, first of all, God's patience. It's like God understands Jonah's pain. And then secondly, see how God responds like a clinical therapist. Oh my gosh. God doesn't even mention the issue of suicide. Do you see how, do you see that? You see how God wants to, wants to talk about what? He wants to talk about Jonah's anger issues. You can see God, it's just it's Jonah lying down on a, on a couch, on a couch, like 45 degree angle, and the Lord's, the Lord's, trying to, the Lord's trying to get to the root, not the fruit of the problem. He doesn't focus on the symptoms, the branches, but he diagnoses the problem. And anger is the seed that will develop into what? Murder, says Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. I can't even wait for you. Do you remember hearing God, do you remember hearing God ask someone else that same question a number of years earlier, or at least something that sounded like that question? Do you do well to be angry? Thank you. The third person named in the Bible, apart from the devil, Cain. Genesis chapter four, verse three says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. So Cain was what? He wasn't just angry, flame on. He's very angry. Man's about to burst out his shirt. Angry. Says, and his face fell. That means he started sulking. Verse six, and the Lord said to Cain, Cain, the Lord asked, he always asks these questions, right? Like, why are you angry? And why are you sulking? (laughs) If you do well, verse seven, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it, Cain. Are you listening, Jonah? Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and he what? Murder starts off as anger. He probably never even expected that that was gonna happen. I heard about an incident that took place just last week where some youths went abroad and a young man got got stabbed, murdered. His parents are grieving now, right now. It's been a week since they lost their son, 19 years old, on his birthday. Why, because some guys couldn't hold their liquor, got a bit rowdy, a bit of drama. Man gets a bit angry, like what? Young man ends up losing his life. Going back to Jonah chapter four, see? And if you wanna dig even deeper, you can see that which motivates Jonah's anger. We're saying anger then turned to, but what's provoking the anger? Ultimately, fundamentally, it's his disagreement with God, with God's will over and against his own. It don't matter what the issue is. Let God be true and every man a liar. God, Jonah weren't feeling God. And he was convinced that he was right and God was wrong. Hey, welcome to the 21st century. And this really calls into question Jonah's apparent repentance in chapter two, right? Jonah was repentant, it seems, but it was evidently based on a selfish motivation. We were talking about this in community group last Wednesday. When Jonah got swallowed by the, fit, the great fish, Jonah only cried out to God. Why? Because he was personally distressed. He just wanted his personal circumstances to change. Hey, I know that because of what we just read in chapter four. So John was really just looking out for himself. Now, it doesn't mean that it wasn't genuine repentance. It was, (laughs) but for him. He ain't thinking about nobody else. He's thinking about himself. 
He wasn't concerned about God's desire to save Nineveh. I don't, to be, it's just that he wasn't feeling the fish. See, and the question is, how about you? How about me? Is there a fishy circumstance that has swallowed you up? Maybe because, it might be because you're going in the wrong direction. You're going in the opposite direction. God wants you to go left and you're going right. I know I feel the pain of that often. Are you temporarily blind to God's purpose in your life? And it can easily happen. Jonah responds in anger. God responds in compassion. Now at this point, could I suggest that Jonah is offended? As I said, how do we know that? Because Jonah again does what he did in chapter one. He's gonna rudely walk away from God without even responding. It's like God speaks to him and he just gives God the hand. Verse five, Jonah went out of the city. If you look at verse four, you see that I'm telling the truth. Jonah went out of the city and sat in the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. Doing what he always does. He's looking out for himself. He sat under it in the shade. (laughs) In the shade. Till he should see what would become of the city. How many of you know he's looking at the city? Should I just say, first of all, scene change, right? Everything else, verse 1 to 4, was inside the city. Now we're outside the city. Verse 5 to 11. And he's outside because he's still expecting that God is going to destroy the city. He'd be like... Come on, like I told God, you'll get it in a minute. Now notice, Jonah was inside the city at one point, now he's outside the city. Jonah's limited to time and space. Jonah can only be in one place at one time, right? But God isn't. It's beautiful. God is in the city, talking to Jonah. God's out the city, talking to Jonah. God was ruled away back in chapter one, speaking to Jonah in Israel. But God's here in Nineveh. When Jonah was in the fish, God was there. When they threw him out the fish, when they threw him out the boat into the water, God was in the water with the fish and Jonah, but God was also with the men in the boat. God is, is omnipresent. And it's one of God's attributes. I thought I'd just throw that one in there, just slip that one in there bit of healthy theology. So here we are outside the city with God's schizophrenic, sociopathic, suicidal, yet successful prophet. And Jonah's sitting outside the city sulking. Jonah's like, Lord, it's coming like I told you. This is a black and white issue. Can't you see? Are you blind? You're not responding rightly, Lord. People who are guilty... People who are evil should be punished. But I know you're going to forgive them, aren't you? That's just typical of you, God. They're going to say sorry after all the wickedness that they've done, and you're just going to forgive them. If you listen carefully, it sounds very similar. It sounds like the prodigal son's brother who stayed at home, remember? And what identified him was what? He was angry. And he was angry fundamentally at the fact that the father was loving. How about you? Do you look at others and desire judgment instead of mercy? Like them who stood there with the stones and the woman caught in the act of adultery? I I can't lie. I do stand in judgment wrongfully sometimes over people. When I see radical Islam going on how it's going on, I struggle to hold it down. We must appreciate that. You know what? On a level, forgiveness is difficult to stomach. If you truly understand evil, if you had someone in your family murdered, if you had a family member in the World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, right? If you're 
If you're the mother of that 19-year-old young man I just mentioned who was murdered in Malia, we've had members in our church suffer in that sense. It's not easy to forgive. Alan Greaves, not sure if you heard about him, he was a church organist who was murdered in Sheffield Christmas Eve last year, 2012. This is, hopefully, this is an interview by his late wife, Maureen Greaves. It's only a minute and a half long. Both of them committed Christians. I believe that justice was done for the actions taken that resulted in the murder of an innocent man. Society needs protecting from people who do such evil acts, and I am greatly satisfied and relieved by the result of the court today. However, no sentence will bring Alan back. Alan was a wonderful man who is so dearly missed, and our lives will never be the same again. I wish to thank South Yorkshire Police and Alan's barrister, Mr Robert Smith, for the incredible job that they have done through this entire process. I know how hard that they have worked to get justice for Alan. I also want to thank them for the way that they have dealt with myself and our children, as they have shown such sensitivity and professionalism and have been a great source of comfort to us during this difficult time. Alan was a man who was driven by love and compassion, and he would not want any of us to hold on to feelings of hate and unforgiveness. So in honour of Alan, and in honour of the God we both love, my prayer is that this story doesn't end today. My prayer is that Jonathan Bowling and Ashley Foster will come to understand and experience the love and kindness of the God who made them in his own image and that God's great mercy will inspire both of them to true repentance. If you were in northern Nigeria, I got a, I got a friend I went to Bible college with who comes from Jos. If you were in that type of environment where you see, I remember one time we was at school and we heard that there was a madness and some Muslim extremists had attacked the town. Marky, I don't know if you remember, Neil, I don't know if you guys remember. And he got the phone call and he sat there telling us names of friends that had been mutilated that he was not going to see when he, when, he, when he went home at Christmas. It's like, if you were in a Tutsi family that had been, mar been massacred by the Hutus, if you were G Gunnar Rigby's parents, you can't say that evil doesn't matter. These Ninevites, they were evil and wicked people who deserved judgment. Forgiveness is difficult to stomach if you truly understand evil, but it is possible. The gospel, the gospel is good news. Through the gospel, through the good news about Jesus who died on the cross, God made peace with mankind. And let me tell you, I don't know about you, but I know I never deserved for God to make me, who was once his enemy, his friend. And he did that through the death of Christ. Jesus, talk about justice. You see, God is a God of love, but God is a God of justice. And he's not going to allow sin to go unpardoned. We saw that in Exodus 34. 
And I tell you, it's not that God sees people sin and just forgives them. Oh, just like that, because he, he's having a good day. The reason God is able to forgive is because Jesus, Jesus righteously and, and, and I would say unjustly in a sense, took what we deserve, took what I deserved. It's not that God just forgave us. Someone had to pay the penalty for our sins and in so doing now, we get to experience the peace and the joy that comes with right relationship with God. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't just sweep evil under the carpet. Forgiveness comes as a result of justice. It all comes at the expense of Christ's sacrifice. And the truth is, if people relent, if people repent, God will on that basis relent. If people turn from their evil ways, God will turn from bringing judgment. Why? For God is gracious. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. The irony is, Jonah isn't perfect, is he? But he's going on like he's perfect. He's also a wicked and sinful person who was a recipient of God's undeserved mercy. Remember when he got thrown into the sea? God should have left, should have. And Jonah was resisting God's will, defied God's word, And he's a murderer at heart. So when it comes to mercy, he'll have it for himself, but he's not willing to give it to others. Jonah will welcome forgiveness for himself, but he won't allow it for his enemies. He's a blinded, short-sighted believer, even in the light of God's goodness and grace. I told you that he's schizophrenic, right? He's got a split personality. In chapter two, he gets swallowed by the fish and he wants to live. Uh, God is salvation. He wants to live. Right here in chapter four, now he wants to die. The guy's schizo. Can anyone identify with him? I know I can. He's a sociopath. The modern preferred term, oh, is antisocial personality disorder. A personality disorder characterized by a morality, sorry, by amorality and lack of effect. is not affected. Capable of violent acts without feelings of guilt. Shakespeare, <clears throat> he made a comment. Listen to what he said. He said, amorality identifies a person who lacks mercy. He's a sociopath. He's... No mercy. He's got suicidal tendencies. We just talked about that, right? Yet, check it, yet, he's a, he's a successful prophet. That's one of the reasons we picked this book because we want to be a healthy church, equipped to disciple, effective in outreach. Hey, you don't have to be Billy Graham to share the gospel and see people saved. Look at this brother, not Shakespeare. Look at Jonah. Jonah is a joker. And look, and look, and look, look. He's, yeah, he's successful. That shows you that, you know what, the work of salvation ain't down to our cleverness, our cleverness of speech and uh, smart words. I lie, Mikey P, Ashley. You know what I mean? It's, it's the powers in the gospel, Romans 1, 16 and 17. You think Acts chapter 2 is amazing in contrast to Jonah? I mean, this is unprecedented. 3,000 got saved, Acts chapter 2. Here we see 120,000 saved. Wow. But through a man who continues to make horrible errors. And here are, <clears throat> and here are three quickly. The angry, three errors that angry people make. Three errors that angry Christians make. And look, three errors that angry, I'm coming over here because I'm included. Three errors that, angry Christians can make. 
Jonah quit. He never... He walked out the city, shared the gospel, then shared the good news about God, and then he walked out the city. What's that all about? He should have stayed in there and encouraged the people a little bit. Disciple them. You can't just go in and see them converted and don't disciple them. He should have followed up his evangelism with this. Second thing is, Jonah separated himself from others. Right? He was in, now he's out, separate. What is it, Proverbs 14.1? Is it 14.1? He who isolates himself seeks his own desire and he rages or she rages against all good judgment. Don't feel like when, man, I ain't really feeling like going to church. man, I ain't really feeling like fellowship. I just really want to be on my own. Just me and the Lord. You're over there hanging out with Jonah. Think you're all right. Think things are all up. Third thing is Jonah became a spectator. Over here spectating. Judgmental and critical. Rather than being empathetic. That, 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 that will happen as a result of us being angry Christians. Let's not think that this can't happen to us. Verse six, time gone. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. Who appointed the plant? The Lord God. There's three things he appoints in verse six, seven, and eight. And he made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. I mean, how many times does God save Jonah, man? God saved him, saved his soul, and he made him a prophet, right? And God saves him from the great fish. We keep talking about that. And now he saves him from discomfort. God is so good. All round. Isn't it easy for us to forget all the, all the good things that God has done, all the, all the things that God has saved us from? So easy to forget. Verse six, God appointed this plant. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. <laughs> if I didn't know better, I would have said that Jonah's really, he seems really easily pleased. See, but it's, it's for selfish reasons. It's all about him. Verse six. Did you know this is the first time in the whole book that Jonah is happy? But he's only happy when good things are happening to him. He's, he's not just happy, he's exceedingly glad. You contrast that with verse 10. God talks about the great city it's actually the same Hebrew word. Jonah's excitement for his own comfort paralleled with God's excitement for the city of Nineveh and their repentance. Parallel. He's excited about the plant. And God is excited about the city, the people. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, Okay, God's working again. Who appointed a worm that attacked the plant? The Lord. Everything comes from the Lord, right? So that it withered. God is evidently in control of everything, isn't he? Including nature. Plant and now a worm. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 27, just speaking about providence, says providence is the almighty an ever-present power of God by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lineage, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance but from his fatherly hand. That should be encouraging. If you don't believe that God is in control of everything, then you don't believe that God is in control of anything. From the largest of fish to the tiniest of worms. Verse eight. When the sun rose, God appointed, here he is again. God appointed, he's working with Jonah, you know. We don't deserve it. God is working with us. We don't deserve it. God appointed a scorching east wind now. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that it was faint. 
get sunstroke. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to live. It's better for me to die than to live. John is such a drama queen, isn't he? <laughs> Acting like he's dying. He's like this, isn't it? Oh, I'm, I'm, a damsel, I'm a damsel in distress. Mopping his breath. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, Jonah, do you, well, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Jonah coming like the Grinch. You know Scrooge at Christmas time? Sitting all hunched over. Counting his pennies. Jonah's there. Counting the leaves that are left on his plant. Are you, ang- are you, are you, are you angry? You ever find yourself getting angry? I'll tell you, God's brought me for a season in my life. And I know I ain't through it yet. Oh my gosh. It's the next story. Are you angry at circumstances? Has God taken, like Jonah, has God taken something away from you? Have you received something that brought you great pleasure that you've now lost? A job, your health, a parent. Just last week, we celebrated Harry, Cal, Sylvanas, their mom passing away 10 years ago. Have you lost a girlfriend or a boyfriend and those things were your, like, were your life, even to the point where it became an idol and replaced, replaced God. And you get angry. I got a text this week. Um, you know that there's a couple in our congregation who were expecting twins and they lost one of the babies. And, you know, amazing, man. Just sent a text. What do you say in circumstances like that? Sent a text to say just how sad we were to hear it and our condolences. And, and I'm just going to read back a culmination of the two texts that I got from the mum and dad. We have a lot of mixed emotions, but are trusting God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away right. If we live saying this through the good times, it's only right that we, re- that we really live it through the tougher times, right? It's a horrible feeling, and if I'm honest, we've been better, but we trust God. Verse 10, and the Lord said, Jonah, man, you pitied a plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Don't make that your idol, Jonah. Furthermore, don't make yourself the idol or anything that God provides us with, you with. Don't make that an idol because that idol will not fulfill you if it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend, if it's... May God help us not to be idolaters. That's what it says at the end of First John, right? Keep yourself from idols. But we all... John, Tim Keller says the heart is an idol-making factory. And it's so true, isn't it? God, Lord, help us not to worship anything other than you. Should I, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, verse 11, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Jonah's more concerned about plants than people. Jonah's really consumed of himself and his own benefit, blind to the needs of others. Can you see that? As you sit in a different place today, my hope was that as you sit in a different place, you would see things from a different vantage point. Just see things a little bit differently. So I'd love to say to Jonah, fam, why don't you just look at it from this angle? It might look a little bit different. Notice God is the one who has the final word in this book. We're not sure what Jonah said in response. Although Jonah probably came to his senses. He probably went and got proper prescription lenses. Because Jonah wrote this book. And how many, how many of you know he doesn't paint himself in a very good light, does he? I would suggest he came to his senses. But the question in verse 11 still stands, doesn't it? And we can substitute Nineveh and its population with any city in the world. London is a great city with lots of people to save. 
much, much more than 120,000. And we could read it like this. Should I not pity, says the Lord, London, that great city in which there are much, much more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? We've got Christians that don't know their right hand from their left. Lord, help me to know my right hand from my left. And it's only your word that's going to do that. And may the example of Nineveh's repentance remind us of what Jesus said. Last verse. Matthew 12, verse 41. The men of Nineveh, says Jesus, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Have we repented at the preaching of Jesus, who is one that is much greater? I'm amazed at God's commitment to Jonah. It's a reflection of his commitment to this great city. It's a reflection of his commitment to you and to me. Let's thank God for his mercy. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.